is Jack Rico, and he's Mike Sargent. And he is brown, and I am black. And this is the Brown and Black Podcast, the show about seeing race in media and entertainment through a brown and black lens. Well, thank you guys for uh, tuning in, listening, streaming, downloading. We appreciate the attention that you guys are giving our show. And the feedback. And the amazing feedback we've been getting. We want to discuss today about Afro-Latino identity with Eric Velasquez, who's an illustrator and author. And we'll be talking to him later on uh, in the show. But first, Mike, how have you been, man? It's been a little crazy. I mean, DACA just came out. The Pride, the Supreme Court justice also allowed transgenders not to be fired uh, in corporate America. I mean, it seems like change is really happening. Two things. I want to answer your question about how I'm doing, but also what's exciting about right now is that if you look at what the definition, or my understanding anyway, of what a democracy is, which is a culture where everybody gets to vote on things and things happen and things change because of what the people want. A democracy is basically government that is not controlled, but is influenced and listens to the people. And government and the institutions that run us, which always comes back to money, as we've talked about here, for them to be making the changes that we're seeing is enormously significant. It has never happened. We are operating like a democracy, in my opinion, for the first time uh, over a hundred years. I would argue since the birth of this country. Yes, I would, you know what? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yes, 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 absolutely. Because we absolutely. know that they were not faithful to their ideology of democracy even back then. Listen, let's be real. Our, our democracy is a sham, okay? It's always been a sham. Oh man, I the think, way I framing think, it like that just kills me mike it's true dude come on let, let, let's face it it is and and any person of color knows that it it is a setup for those who are in power to stay in power and everything that we ever talk about is always going to be about our opposition to that one of the most interesting things about in this time for me and i've had this conversation with a few other black journalists is all of a sudden our perspective matters <laughs> like hey all hey, of a sudden what do you think you know and and so i get that i get that from media uh, doing things and, and getting invited to talk about this talk about that and because I, I have the group the black film critic circle we are getting requests all the time do you have anybody local to here do you have it so i'm throwing out various members to talk to the washington post emailed me about earlier this week do you have somebody in in dc that can you know so all of a sudden our perspective matters and people are actually listening and we're also seeing that people are starting to get it and not only get it but back it up with action i wanted to circle back really quick about your yahoo finance appearance there was an asian woman that was interviewing you and it stood out on screen that an asian woman and a black man were having a conversation and to know that there was a whole system in place that deterred from that happening all this time but you went along and you started talking about context uh, in images and why it's so important. America, in general, produces great entertainment, great movies, great film. You know, we, we influence the world. But film and TV are enormous tools of propaganda. So without any kind of context or control or balance in representation, it literally just becomes straight up propaganda. Context, Mike. That's what stood out of that quote and most of your interview. Why do you feel context is so key? 
without any context, they used to say we, when Obama was president that we were living in a post-racial society. I used to read that all the time. <laughs> and, and that's just some bullshit. So, so to me, context is everything. That brings me to the first story about the NBA. Black athletes are having an issue of returning back to the NBA because they feel that their return could help deter or dilute the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, a lot of these players are actually at these protests like Damon Lillard, Stephen Jackson, and many more. Kyrie Irvin, who is one of the NBA's biggest superstars, he plays for the New Jersey, well, now the New York Nets, uh, the Brooklyn Nets. He says, and he's he's made his money, and he's got a championship, and, you know, this guy doesn't need to prove anything. So he said, listen, I don't want to go back to playing basketball. I'm willing to give up my whole career for this moment because I feel that being here at this moment is more important than any game, any money that I'm making, and I think all of you should. So there was a rebuttal to this by Austin Rivers, who's the son of Doc Rivers, a coach from the NBA as well. Austin Rivers essentially said, look at it this way. We'll have a stage, a national stage, every day, practice, middle, after post games." Talking about Black Lives Matters. What better, better stage to discuss this and to keep the movement, but while making our money and then reinvesting it back in our community? No, wait, who said this? This was Austin Rivers, which makes sense too. I think both ideas are right because they're all meant with an intention of care. But Mike, at the end of the day, who's right? Who's wrong? In context, basketball is some frivolous shit. Mm -hmm. Okay, who mm -hmm. gives a fuck about basketball when people are dying? This is a national crisis, mm -hmm. but we're so used to, there's so many crises going we're on. We're desensitized. We're de completely desensitized. Somebody asked me the other day, I was on some other show and they asked me, like, oh, you know, what does it mean to be a New Yorker? And part of what it means to be a New Yorker in this time we live in, you know, New York is full of stimulus. There's access to everything. But at the same time, there's as much access to wealth as there is to poverty. You can't give money to every homeless person you see, and there's tons of them. So you have to kind of turn that off. You have to become numb to human suffering. And I think that, that money anesthetizes you from reality. I think right. sports, TV shows, they all anesthetize you. Yes, it is a distraction. It is a huge distraction, especially considering the percentage of people who are playing in these sports. It is a lot of people of color. My last thing I did want to talk to you about was how corporate America is rebranding many of its most popular products like Cream of Wheat and Jemima, Mrs. Barterworth and Uncle Ben's. Have you been reading about this? Because it's been picking up steam in the news. And to a certain extent, I'm like, oh, man, but that's just like, you know, syrup. I'm not going to go crazy about syrup. We got bigger, -ish, bigger fish to fry over here on this end. Again, coming back to context, what they're really doing is they're examining the roots of the racist roots of these brands. There was a time where there were many many racist brands and you know the process of branding it's it's a distinctive design it's something that that represents something in the mind of the consumer and for the white consumer who grew up and when i say who grew up i'm talking about a country who grew up with black servants and if you had a a black butler who 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 was good at serving oh, damn uncle ben is on shit okay <laughs> and you know and if you have a syrup that's sweet from some big fat black woman. Damn, Miss Butterworth, that's the best. 
you know, so <laughs> sure, all all of those iconic images, depending on how much you know of history, you know, you could pin it to specific actors who exemplified that stereotype. That's America, though. America has always tried to rebrand itself. I'm just glad that there's change happening, that people are talking about it, you know, that uh, that, that that we feel that there's progress, you know, finally being made. Progress and also, and, and this is part of what we get into with Eric, but just how important and how our identities are tied into the image that is represented of us. How much do we want to embrace the image that is represented of us and how much do we need to fight it? The thing about Afro-Latino identity and one of the issues that I had growing up was that People who are Afro-Latino sometimes have a struggle with their own identity. Are they Latino or are they black or are they both? And if you're both, what the hell does that mean and what does that look like? Eric, who's uh, an author and illustrator and Afro-Latino himself, is going to give us some of his thoughts about that. introduce our guest who is Eric Velasquez. He's an author, illustrator, a son of Afro-Puerto Rican parents. He went to High School of Art and Design and he also attended the School of Visual Arts and is currently a professor at FIT. Eric, welcome to Brown and Black. Wow, well, thank you, Mike Sargent. It's great to be here and it's great to be here also with Jack Rico. How are you, uh, Eric? I've been... uh... I've been wanting to talk to you about uh, the climate that we're in and obviously your Afro-Latino background and image representation and how you have contributed to try and make the world look and reflect more of who we are as opposed to this one particular dominant group, the white group. Can you begin telling us when you decided to start creating illustrations and books, essentially telling stories about the Afro-Latino experience? It all began when I decided to write Grandma's Records back in 2001. I wanted to tell the story of spending summers with my grandmother. And at the time, there were no books that featured any Afro-Latinos in it. Of course. My editor was really excited at the idea of of me writing the uh, story. However, I I started noticing that among my friends, particularly uh, my Puerto Rican friends, they weren't so enthusiastic. Uh, you sure the world really wants to hear about the summers you spent with your grandmother? Really? Just, you know, who, who wants to hear that? So I really had to shut off all those voices and sit down to write the story. And fortunately, the book is still in print. It sells all over the world, wherever there are Latinos. I get letters to this day. People are discovering that they have a relationship with their grandchildren through sharing old music and records. Mm. People have come to see me while I'm signing the books at the various book signings that I've done. They've traveled for like four hours and they tell me, oh, I drove all, <laughs> all night to come and meet you. One woman came to one of my signings with her daughter and uh, you know, they just burst into tears when they oh, sh- wow. shook my hand. Because she says there's like, such a lack of representation This woman said, I wanted my daughter to meet you and just shake your hand to let her know that it's possible that people that look like us have achieved things. So when when I wrote Grandma's Records, I had no idea that it would have this kind of uh, impact, Hmm. which 
then led to the sequel Grandma's Gift, eventually led me to Schomburg, the man who built a library, and the newest title, um, Octopus Stew. Wow. We, we sort of, I don't feel we glossed over it, but we, it's one of those things that you can say very casually that there were no children's books for dark Latinos, for Afro Latinos. There were no children's books. How that many children's correct. books are out there? I mean, would you say, <laughs> I mean, you're a children's book illustrator. You've illustrated over 30 books. Yes. When I did grandma's records, it was the only book of its kind. And now I'm so happy to see so many books that feature Afro-Latinos. I meet Afro-Latino authors now all the time. I, I've been called the OG by <laughs> Elizabeth Acevedo, <laughs> who won the National Book Award and is a, you know, a, a very respected poet and author in her own right. Uh, but I, I'm so proud of the fact that I've, I've kind of opened that door. I even had a student, his name was Charles George in my class. And one day after class, by all accounts, he seemed like, a, uh, you know, he was uh, African-American. So he um, approaches me one day after class and he says, Professor, I need to tell you something. Um, because of you, I've decided to put my, <laughs> add my last name to my name again. And it didn't make any sense because it's like, well, Mr. George, <laughs> is it your name Charles George? It's like, what other last name do you have? He says, my real name is Esperanza, and my parents are from Puerto Rico, like you. And because I don't look Puerto Rican. Wait, wait what, is, what is a Puerto Rican supposed to look like? Aha. Uh -huh. So this, this young guy had been getting crap all his life since he was in kindergarten to the point where he decided to drop his last name. Um, so I, I found that amazing. And the thing is that I am so proud of this young man because he's a published illustrator, author illustrator. He's now pretty famous. And I consider him, he's one of my art sons at this point, you know. I, <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Eric, you know, one of the things that Mike and I were talking about in our previous episode was about image representation and the yes. importance of that image representation. In America, there is a particular problem with image representation, but in Latin American countries, colorism is probably even deeper than the actual racism, you know? Yes. How difficult has the Afro-Latino community, yourself included, has that been punishing for someone like you? And why is this colorism supremacy still in play on novellas, on Univision and Telemundo, on People in Espanol magazine where they prefer lighter colors, even though we're Hispanic and we understand the plight of the Hispanic in the United States of America. But these American Hispanic institutions, for some reason, they're executives, they're actors, they're writers, every single level you barely see dark skin people in power, even in our own companies. Why do you think that is? And how do we change something like that? That's been around a long time. And I know from uh, watching several documentaries, there were countries like Cuba and Puerto Rico that were doing business with the United States at the beginning of the century, uh, the, uh, the 20th century. They were doing business with the United States and, and the um, representatives from the United States would refuse to do any business with people that were, you know, 
dark, let's say, mm. and preferred to do business with people that had European features. So as a result, people that were more, let's say, that looked like me, um, that had African features, were kind of moved out of those upper positions, particularly working, let's say, in sugarcane, coffee, let's say, and they moved in the people with the European features. So a lot of that came by way of the United States and maybe other um, European countries that were doing business you know, with, with the people of the Caribbean, from what I understand from the documentaries that I've seen. I just don't understand how that's not Nazi-esque. It really sounds like a German <laughs> speaking about a Jew in World War II. Yeah, but I think in the, in the Caribbean, we've politely chosen to look away, just look the other way. And we have this expression in, in, in Puerto Rico, in particular, Santulce. I déjalo. I'll let it go. You know, it's no big deal. You know, we'll just let them get away with this and it'll be okay. We'll, we'll, you know. And that like passive attitude towards racism has, I think, hurt the Afro-Latino in the long run. Fortunately for me, I had a very strong grandmother who was born in 1909 and would constantly tell me about a time in Puerto Rico where her family was basically the top of the food chain. They were they were very middle class. They were all literate. And she would say everything changed when they arrived. Now, in school, you know, it was like, well, who are you talking about? Who arrived? And she would say, well, when, when the whites arrived. But I thought they came with Columbus. And she would say, oh, what am I going to do with this kid? You know, he doesn't know anything. So she would say that everything was fine until they arrived. And, I, and she would always just say it like that with no further explanation. And thanks to Henry Louis Gates and his documentary. Yeah, Black and in Latin America. Black, I love, I love, love, love that. Love that. That is one of the greatest resources to really, truly understand uh, colorism. This is why this Black Lives Matter movement is not exclusively American. I think this is a global issue. Absolutely. And it begins in Hispaniola. It begins in yep. Peru, in Mexico, in Brazil, where their slave trade was so profuse. Each city that slave trade landed on, each city became the mecca of its uh, periphery. To understand how they treated them is a better understanding of how we got to, to the way America treats blacks, except that the difference, like you said a little while ago, the difference between Latin American racism and American, North American, United States, American racism, two different octaves, man. They're in two different gears. One is full 10 blasts and the other one is like a five or a six. It is so intense here. Fortunately here, you're more likely to get a pushback. Like in the 1960s with the wonderful Black Panther movement and, you know, Malcolm X, you know, the pushback was there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think it inspired a lot of people of the, uh, the Caribbean. But now there's this really great awakening that's, that's occurred that, that I think my, my grandmother would be so happy that it, it's happening. Uh, where the Afro-Latino now doesn't want to hide, wants to be seen, wants to be counted alongside his African-American brothers. So that's pretty much how, how I see it. But thanks to him, Louis Gates, who actually confirmed everything my grandmother was saying, because there he explained the Royal Decree of Graces, where Spain was issuing this one-way ticket to anyone 
um, not just in Spain, but Europe that would want to come to Puerto Rico and Cuba and Dominican Republic. Oh, that's the immigration law from 1906. Yep, and it ran all the way into the 1920s. And they were offered incentives. They funded their flights. They funded yeah. their life in these countries because of el blanqueamiento, the, the whitifying of their, yep. those two countries because they wanted to eradicate the skin color so bad that they took their heroes like uh, Antonio Maceo. Maceo. And yep. in the Dominican Republic, the three, you know, Jorge Duarte, uh, yep. these <laughs> men that were obviously black, you start noticing that throughout history, they start becoming a lot more white. Image Absolutely. representation again. The sort of the cleansing of that black color off of their skin to be able to match the one of their oppressors. What were your thoughts on Coco? Oh, I really loved that movie. It won an Oscar. Um, yes. It had dark skin cartoon characters from Mexico. Yes. I loved it. I loved it. I yes. spoke to the directors, Mr. Molina, uh, who was one of them. And we had a conversation about how important representation of a brown color, right? Yes. On a Pixar movie meant because it was essentially saying, enter the members only club that we've had just for ourselves. But now, you know, your story and your color can now be also included in our storytelling. I thought that that was so key for self-esteem yeah. for kids that are watching that. And for whites also who are watching and going, oh, I guess brown color isn't so fearful either. I, I think it validates kids of color, but it also instills in the white children and or you know adults that these other people are just as valid. Mm -hmm. you right, know? right, right. And their stories are just as beautiful. They exactly. have a reason to be proud too. And the thing is that within the Latino culture, which I've noticed more so than in African-American culture, I think, well, American culture, there's this inherent need to so-called put you in your place whenever you're feeling good about yourself or you're, or you're smiling or you're happy. Someone needs to say, um, you know, what all you lives matter. Yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> what are you smiling about? Why are you laughing? What, you yeah, know, and it's exactly. like, wow, like I am, I am not well, you know, allowed to smile. My take on that is it's at their expense. You know, oh, I feel that they, wow. they feel it's at their expense. It's not like you can't, no, you can't have what I have because then I won't have it. They don't see it. They won't define it as privilege. You know, I think it's more subconsciously they see it as superiority. So if you try and take a moment, uh, if you try and draw attention away, that's, you know, I saw a woman got a tattoo, white lives matter, you know? And, and it's like, okay, but it doesn't need to be said because the culture is saying it for you in every single way. Exactly. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Right. So, but that's not enough because now some fraction of the culture is not saying that. No way. No way. Get back in your place. Right. Right. And now what they really want to say is white lives are all that matter. And that's the problem. Exactly. Exactly. That's the problem. Question that Jack had in one of the previous podcasts about how Afro Latinos were interpreting everything that was happening. Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask you that. Essentially, I've always felt like the Afro Latino is in a dual situation because they're receiving the colorism and racism in their own Latin American countries. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, at some point, they're going to be like, well, let's get out of here. And then they come to America and they get it even worse. 
That's correct. I, and I've been thinking about that since you posed the question. And I think ultimately for the Afro-Latino, those of us that identify as Afro-Latino, my alliance will always be to Africa and Africanism. You know, this, mm. I see myself as an African first, not as a Latino. That's, that's just the language and, and part, parts of the culture. But if you come to visit my home, you're going to find not just um, art supplies, but you're going to find congas, bon, un bongo, we got a weedo, we, I, you know, so I am, and these are instruments that originate in, in Africa, you know, uh, so my heart and, and my soul are still African first. So you, you keep the, uh, the rest <laughs> because with the African, I got, I got the music and I got a lot of the food, including pasteles. I'm, I'm a happy camper. There, and, I, and I think, yeah. Only because it includes pasteles. There you go. <laughs> there are some uh, African Americans in this country that feel like the Afro Latino because they're not purely black. Mm hmm. And because they're a different iteration of black to them, that they cannot be included in the Black Lives Matter movement. Their argument is, you can support us, but you ain't us. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about, Jack Rico. <laughs> <laughs> um, really? You know, no, I, I really, it's like, I, I am as African-American as any African-American there is. Um, like I said, I'm an African first, so, and I've never encountered that. I've had um, discussions with friends that are African-American. There's an, an illustrative friend that, that I really, really um, hold very near and dear to my heart. Uh, one time actually approached me with, with that idea. It's like, you know, he said he feared that I thought of myself as greater than the African-American. Mm. And, and I was really hurt, you know, because I had at that point had known him for about 15 years. And I was really hurt by that comment because I was in his home. We were having dinner and I looked at him and I and I basically said, a woman in Africa gives birth to two children. Unfortunately, on that same day, she's kidnapped. She's grabbed. She's taken on a on a slave ship headed for America. The ship makes three stops. And one of the stops is Cuba. And one of her, she's separated from one of her uh, children and he's left there. The other stop is South Carolina where they're 1619. Exactly. And what I told him was, with tears in my eyes, I said, 400 years later, those two brothers see themselves, see each other across a subway platform and they lock in a stare. Wow. With the notion, I know you, I know you from somewhere, but I don't know where. And that's how I pretty much met my friend, um, who shall remain nameless. But, but we would look at each other because we were the only two brothers uh, on, on the subway with, with portfolios. Hmm. And it's like, hmm, I don't know him from the School of Visual Arts, I do, but I know I know him from somewhere. 
and eventually, um, I, I did um, approach him, introduce myself, only to find out find out that he was a very famous illustrator. Um, but that's how I always see it. That we're all the we're the same people. Now, the, the ironic thing is that my friend says that whenever he's um, in, you know, uh, in, in Spanish Harlem, let's say, or visiting the Hispanic society, looking at the wonderful paintings by Joaquin Sorolla, he said people come up to him and speak Spanish to him, and he doesn't <laughs> understand why, <laughs> because because you look like you're Afro Latino. Mike gets that a lot from dude. I listen up here when I listen up where I live. I used to say I live in the Dominican Republic. I mean, people <laughs> listen. I mean, I would go into the store. Now I've been here a long time now, but I go into the store. They start speaking Spanish to me, and I'm like, uh, "No comprende." And they're like, "Why don't you speak Spanish? Like, are you one of yeah, those why Latinos?" Don't you speak Spanish. Yeah, yeah. I've said learn, this to him yeah, so yeah. many times. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, 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 you two do the rest of the show in Spanish now. And it's like, well, too bad. Too bad. <laughs> It'll hurt. <laughs> oh man! A couple things you said really struck me. What both of you said just about brotherhood which is part of the point of this show. The thing that I'm probably pleased most about what's happening right now is that we can have these conversations and people are interested in hearing these conversations. Conversations about race may not be comfortable, but they still have to happen. And this is what, what they've been avoiding for yes. 400 years, man, is yes. to have right, this right. conversation. But it's not just between black and white. It is between brown and black. We're much stronger together. There have been many times where the, the white patriarchy has kept back a group, whether it was women, whether it was workers, whether it was Latinos, whether it was blacks, whether it was Asians. And if all of those who were not getting a fair shake in this society came together, none of these things could be happening because we would represent more than the majority. Mm -hmm. And their biggest fear is everything we're talking about, not just coming together, becoming the majority, not just becoming the majority, but also they talk about the purification and the pure race and all that. Uh -huh. Well, clearly it's ludicrous to be holding on to that considering history, but the fact that all of us here, because I'm Caribbean, I'm British, I, I've got mixed blood in me, I, I wouldn't have hair on my chest if I didn't. You, you are, are of mixed heritage, Eric. Jack, yeah. you're of mixed heritage. You've got Native American. And we are still brothers. We still can look at each other across the intellectual and the spiritual divide and recognize each other. American racism, they've taken it to a whole other social construct. They, they created it with intention to yes. oppress and so that part to me is so damn like how do you unlearn that which is the reason i've been telling mike uh, you know eric i i think that there's i mean th this smells of the civil war of 1865 wow how many videos have you seen of rednecks with guns saying if they defund the police uh we're coming out to get you because mm. who's going to save you now Cornell West recently said, you're lucky that we're asking for equality and we're not trying to construct the black Ku Klux Klan. Wow. It's true. There isn't violence. Blacks and minorities don't want violence against whites, but for some reason they think that that's... The fear is retaliation. 
You know, yeah. Yeah. no, no, no one who is dominant, even if you want to let go of your dominance, you can't. Well, why would you? Even if you well, why but that's would you? The, well, <laughs> that's the whole you, point. Why would to, maybe your, your daughter is gay and you're you're a, a well-known straight white male politician? Maybe. I mean, there are reasons why you might consider it, but you have a lot of reasons not to let that shit go. Absolutely. OK. Yeah, and that's why I think that this isn't going to be easy. We're just not going to make a bunch of changes. And it's like, okay, you know, they're going to relent to us. Policies won't change the mentality. The mindset, it's going to it's gonna be here to stay. What we have to be able to do is equal footing with them. And I don't know how else that's going to be done. That's why I'm thinking, not that I want it, but just like the Civil War had to happen. I don't know how it won't happen here. I'm not I, because I, I and I'm, I want to hear your point, but I again I have to disagree because I feel that the war is already happening. I think it's a different battlefield. That's all. But go ahead, Eric. Mm-hmm. I want to hear what you're saying. And I and I also disagree with you, Jack. I I I think this is a different generation. And what I saw among those marchers was just a different like resolve. Um, I'm old enough to remember the marches, you know, uh, the civil rights marches, and I've done quite a bit of work uh, and research um, in that area. This, this is a very, very different thing here. When you have all these, not just white kids, but kids of all different ethnicities out there That's marching. True. It's a very multicultural movement. Yeah, so when you say civil war, um, I'm, I'm pretty much accustomed to seeing it black against white. Yeah, it ain't the Avengers movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> Iron Man uh, it, against Captain America. Like, uh, Captain America. <laughs> Perhaps this this is more like the open-minded versus the ignorant. Now, I feel that it's a it's a war of values. It's a war of conflict. A conflict of ideals. That's the war that we're fighting. That the battleground. The, the red states, the blue states, that's the media. The media mm. plays a huge right. role. Mm, you know, representation. True, who who are some of the casualties? What are some generals that went down? The editor at, at a major uh, a newspaper, the, the editor at a major magazine. These are some of the casualties of that social war. And it is a war of values. And that is the war we're in right now. Because to me, this is was the rallying cry. Like the war's been going on. This is like we had the battle of the this, we had the battle of that. <laughs> we are now. This is my opinion. We will look back on this and realize, you know, there have been cold wars, there have been nuclear yeah. wars, there have been all kinds of wars, and this is the war we're in now. It is a civil war, but it is absolutely a war utilizing very different kind of propaganda is probably one of the most biggest weapons of mass destruction happening right now because it's influencing minds and brainwashing. Like, forget Hiroshima. You could take out a lot more people with a brainwash bomb. They threw that bomb 400 years ago, man. We're still, like, feeling the effects of it. Eric, so how do you see us repairing this? What ways can we use to reconstruct and redesign an America that helps us? (laughs) Yes, Professor Velasquez. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Tell us. Teach us. <laughs> you know, I, I think we're doing it right now by having the discussions. And, you know, we, we're we in a country that shies away from discussions on race. Yes. And as a result, it's held us back as, as, a, as a country, as a nation, from progressing forward. Um, so I think the, the, this is the beginning, having these discussions. I know, Mike, you said in the last podcast, 
that you have now white friends that have like reached out to you and they, <laughs> yeah. they're apologizing. <laughs> they, what can they do? And I've gotten those emails as well. We need to have these conversations and we need to also be truthful. People that have uh, benefited from a particular type of privilege, they really need to, to own up to that. We have to do the work. We have to keep these discussions going uh, and we have to all be truthful with one another got to be doing like what we talked about last week, what, what T.I. is doing and, and what LeBron James is doing, mm -hmm. pushing. You got to keep pushing, keep pushing, get relentless. Yeah, that's it. We have to be relentless. And I feel like that's part of our DNA anyway. That is our power. What we've already seen in the 15 to 21 days that this has all been going down, less than a month, the leadership that has arisen because of what this is about, because this is not just economic. It's not just social. It's not just racial. All of these things that have created the society that we're in. The biggest difference I can cite is the difference between this, talk about the civil rights movement, but let's not forget Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street mm. is something that could have made significant change. Everybody got it, but there was no leadership. There was no right. direction. It was way too democratic, okay. I think. It, it, it was just way too many you know, white people wanting to have something to, to, to do. Okay, that's really what it became. What I remember most during that time is that groundswell. People kept coming out. People were with it. Occupy everything happened. Yeah, that's a millennial generation thing. That's a that's definitely a millennial generation. Yes, I had yeah. the whole quote unquote leadership group, the dozen of them that started it. I had them all on my show at the same time during the height of the movement. But there was no real leadership. There was no real agenda. So nothing got accomplished. But, but I think the objectives were not clear to everyone. Exactly. As opposed to what's happening now, the objectives are very clear. They're being echoed every single day. That's why I'm more optimistic. I, I understand Jack's pessimism because I, I look at these videos and, and social media and what these cops are doing and what they're getting away with and how they treat men, women, children, That's what elderly. I see. That's what I see. And, and, and that, that evil is the one that I feel... Yeah that is out to defend and resist. Now, by the way, I totally agree with what you guys say. I actually see it more like that as well, but it's almost like I have to see it to believe it. I've seen a lot of movements implode. I've seen a lot, the Me Too movement imploded. You haven't heard anything about Me Too. Like after Harvey Weinstein was put in jail, it's almost like, well, we got our catch. We kind of should stop. In the first 15 days of this, you have not even heard a peep out of Me Too. Uh, it's not that they imploded, but like not a peep. So that's that's interesting. But I still say it paved the way. It paved the way. It, it, showed, way. it showed it paved the way. It showed the power, okay, of the 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 thought of the moment. Yes. The, the I, concern I so. of the moment. And it showed how powerful that can be. And it, it sh again, the, to use the A word, like I used to try and use it every week, accountability. Ah, so where can people find you and your books and everything? I can be found on Facebook, Eric Velasquez. I'm on Twitter, Eric Velasquez New York, at Eric Velasquez New York. Uh, Instagram, Eric underscore Velasquez. And you can uh, find me on uh, wherever books are sold. Amazon. Amazon, sure, and uh, independent bookstores. My latest book is Ruth Objects, The Life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And the book 
prior to that that I authored, Octopus Stew, is out there, and you can find me. <laughs> I'm not it's, I think it's interesting that you didn't mention ericvelasquez.com. And ericvelasquez.com. <laughs> I did not mention that. Talk about, hey, why, Mark, why does Mark uh, Ron Zuckerberg get uh, the plug? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Eric, it was a pleasure talking with you, and thanks for enlightening us about your work, your art, and your thoughts uh, on what's going on right now. It was a pleasure talking to you as well, Jack, Rico. I've been a fan now for a few years. I've Don't listened to on. quite a few of your podcasts. And hablando se entiende. Hablando se entiende. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Had yeah, right. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> Some kind of moment. Rocket chair time. Rocket chair Are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no-excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro.